Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give thanks that you have given us your word. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might hear this word as living and active and transformative. Make us more and more into the likeness of you by our hearing and receiving of this, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our Old Testament scripture comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 6. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last couple weeks, we have been looking at the theme of forgiveness from a couple different scriptures. The first week, we looked at that Leviticus passage and, and that, that goat upon whose head all of the sins of a community are placed and the goat is sent in the wilderness. And last week, we looked at that scripture related to where Peter asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times. No, seven times. Seventy And this week, the scripture comes to us, actually it's also the lectionary scripture for this particular Sunday, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then 11 through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to the citizens of the country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods of that pig of the pigs who were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. 
and now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he had got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working for you like a slave. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sinners and tax collectors. They keep gathering with Jesus in the gospel of Luke and The leaders at the beginning of chapter 15, they take note with grumbling. This audible, inexplicable expression of disdain. Tax collectors, each with the kind of people that are sort of Jewish pawns for the Roman Empire. No spine to stand up to the injustice. In fact, oppositely, tax collectors have found a way to make a few bucks off collecting taxes from the poor Jewish people who are being held down by the oppressive Roman system. Tax collectors are traitors to their own people. No loyalty. Opportunists. Sinners. That all-encompassing way of talking about people of disrepute. It's not a term that necessarily means everybody because everybody's a sinner. Luke's use of the term, it's sort of an umbrella term of everyone who has been deemed particularly unclean or at fault. And every generation names the disrepute a little differently even as Every generation has marked similarities. The prostitutes, the foreigners, the thieves, the murderers, those who've done this, those who've done that. The problem isn't that Jesus treats everyone nicely, but he welcomes them and he eats with them. That's time, that's focused attention, that's conversation, that's listening, that's implicitly honoring the personhood of the other. Who today would it scandalize our conscience to eat with if others saw it happening? I mean, who today, what person, group of people, would we be terrified by what others might think we are endorsing if we eat with them or that person? Jesus eats with sinners. The people about whom we may sometimes grumble because sin, seriously, sin. Far better, far safer to grumble about their kind, their actions, their interactions from from a distance where the residue of all of that can't get on anyone. But then C.S. Lewis, he talks about the sort of the other side of this, the the problem with grumbling. And he, he writes, hell, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Now you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself, wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when, when you can no longer Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. 
And so Jesus, he's worried what, about what grumbling does, what gossiping does, which is just a low-grade form of grumbling, pointing at a distance and shaking head and, and letting that become a posture. But Jesus came to save. How do you save good people, Pharisees, religious people, rule-abiding religious leaders who here are grumbling and know they are in fact right about the sin and the foolishness over there? You tell a parable. There was a man, you heard, who had two sons. The younger one asked for his inheritance before his father's died. He has no respect for authority, all the years of hard work and sacrifice so that there actually could be a family inheritance. Like so many, he just wants his moment, his time, his money, immediate gratification right now. No respect, immediate gratification. His insulting ask is granted. He then, you heard, gets as far away as he can from the family name, the family traditions, the family meal, the family faith, and he spends all of the inheritance on dissolute living. We're left to the imagination as to what that is. And then as often happens, a few bad choices collide with something that no one could control, right? A famine hits the land. And so now the bad choices are really accented because the younger son is near starvation, has to sell himself out to a pig farmer, a Jewish man working with pork under a Gentile. At some point, people can fall so low, it's really just embarrassing to bring them up or their situation in certain social settings. They've so betrayed the family name, the family way, or just even basic standards for societal decency. Such are some of the younger brothers and sisters. But in shame and in near starvation, he comes to his senses. Interestingly, he doesn't think about comparing himself to his older brother, who's happy and well-fed. He thinks about his, the servants, the slaves. He observes that, that even the servants have food to spare, and, and here I am hungry. And actually, the most trans- straightforward translation would be, even the servants have more than enough to spare, and here I am hungry. Which kind of muddles his motives a little. Does, does he humbly long to return and just, just consider me a servant? I'm so sorry. Or do his words suggest a little bit of resentment about those servants that have more than enough, and here he is. Now, true, the younger son, he goes on, you heard, with what sounds like a a grand-hearted apology that he's crafted. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your your hired servants. But again, how how do you read that? I mean, commentators kind of go back and forth on this. Maybe it is an expression of pure contrition. Or maybe there's some of that younger son or daughter ability to finagle and manipulate and say what the parent wants to hear and make this work. I mean, he really may be the model repentant person who feels terrible about going so far astray. Or maybe he's a mix of resentment and regret, conniving and contrition. Either way, it's not explicit how to read this, and we don't know which way it may truly be, but either way, the next sentence reads this. While the younger son was still far off, the father was filled with compassion. How does the Apostle Paul put that same truth? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we had a good apology that we we did, we felt from the heart. Once we started to kind of turn some things around in our lives. Then Christ loved us 
to the point of death. No, while we were yet sinners, while the younger son is still far off, covered in the mud of his own choices, the mud of disrespect, the mud of immaturity, and who knows the state of his heart, while he's still far off, compassion. The father so joys in relationship that his compassion is made visible and he begins to run. How unbecoming of the family patriarch. How upside down and wrong, really, that the one with dignity and years of wisdom is the one who's sweating to get to the squanderer and the disrespecter. How upside down and wrong is the one with rank to come into the barracks of failure. How upside down and wrong the God of the universe who is above all to come and sweat and cry as a babe in the manger. The father's heart beats for relationships restored. He throws his arms around the shamed son and kisses him. The son starts into the apology. The father, it's like he doesn't even hear it or certainly gives no acknowledgement to it. Instead, he just turns immediately to one of his servants. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. A ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. The robe and the ring, the father wants to make it clear this son is home. He is wrapped in love. He, he is bound in covenant with this family. The sandals he has given unto a new journey right here with this family name. And then, of course, the fatted calf, right? Meat's a delicacy in this ancient society. Maybe you get it once a year. The fatted calf, that's enough for the whole village, for the whole week, maybe more. And then music and dancing. The message to the mud-covered son is not only that this is home, that you belong, but, but home at its essence is a feast, is a party, is a joy supreme. And this is hardly the only time that scripture underscores this. You may recall when the people of God went into exile for their disobedience, and yet uh, Isaiah prophesies about a day when, when God would gather them back, and, and we read, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. The vision of restoration is a feast, a banquet, a joy, all kinds of siblings. (laughs) Or you might think again of the Psalms. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, there's sort of this slow, circuitous build into how they're ordered. And so Psalm 150, it's the, the the pinnacle, the finale, the height, which declares what life in God is all about at its fullest deepest, purest. In Psalm 150, it's really short. It just keeps saying, praise the Lord. Praise him with the sounding of trumpet. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the crash of cymbals. Find an instrument, play music, dance. One way or another, give expression to the joy that is known in the heart of God and that home. Or again, we can flip all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and it depicts the fullness of heaven coming down to earth as a banquet, a feast with music in abundance. Time and again, Scripture is clear that if you had to boil the heart of God and God's kingdom down to one word, you could readily go with joy. When we think about God, do we think joy? When we consider what we know of God, do we know joy? When we think about the people of God, do we think joy? Do we know joy? Some, though, they they cannot see the sun, they cannot see the party, they see really only the mud. The older son, he's out in the field, he hears the music and the dancing. 
He's in the vicinity. He's on the property of home, but he's far from the heart of it. A servant tells him what's going on, and he's angry. He refuses to go in. And as with the younger son, the father moves toward now the older son, pleading with him to come in. Whether it's the obvious mud of the younger brother or the hidden resentful mud of the older brother, the father's response is the same. I'm moving towards compassion. Still, you heard, the older son bursts out. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I have never disobeyed your rules. And as often is the case with those older brothers and sisters, he's right. He's been in the field every single day. He's shown up to church every single Sunday. He doesn't cut work early. He certainly has no criminal records, misdemeanors, serves on boards, committees. And the amount of times he has shown up at 6 a.m. or 10 p.m. or midnight to help out whatever is needed in the field, countless. Of course, this brother considers all of that a requirement, a slavery of which he has no choice. You just, you need to do the right thing. But now this son of yours, this son of yours comes home. The older brother cannot even acknowledge the younger son as brother. The rule breakers, the shameful, the selfish, the short-sighted, those kind of people are not family in an understanding we're doing the right thing defines the family. When this son of yours squanders your property on prostitutes, he comes home and and you kill the fatted calf for him, and and that's part of my remaining inheritance that you're blessing him with. Rule keepers who do what they're supposed to should eventually be rewarded, and rule breakers should sit in the misery of their decisions. That's a sort of a basic equation of fairness. That's sort of a basic equation of life. I should be in, he should be out. My son, the father replies. Again, the father sees not all of the angry mud. Most fundamentally, most essentially, he still sees a child. And notice it's not, my son, you have. You have kept all the rules. You always have worked right, worked hard. You always have done right, always have been diligent. No, no, no. My son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. All that is mine is yours. Present tense. The party's yours as well. Always has been, always will be. But of course we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead and is alive again. Lost and now is found. This brother of yours. I love that. First the father calls the older son, son. And then he speaks of the younger son as this brother of yours. In the father's eyes, this group is family no matter what. The father will forgive and show compassion time and again because what is most fundamental to this father are not the rules but the relationships and the joy known therein. In the story, it ends without resolution. Will the older brother remain or enter the party? Will he grumble and so become imprisoned to his audible disdain? Or will he dance unto a new freedom? 
It's no secret that the church in every generation is often filled with us older brothers and sisters who, who stay home and, and, and do a lot of the right things. And, and so the open ending is often for the, for the church as well, well, what will we do? And, 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 and if we are in places where we, we, we hold some measure of, of, of judgment or resentment or unforgiveness, or, and we're right, by the way, how might we even start to stumble into something as wrong and perfect as that party. You recall before the younger son ever made it into that party, the first thing the father did was clothe him with some of those exquisite essentials that the son might live from the truths of those clothing which declared that he belonged, that he was loved, that he was wrapped in compassion. And I would suggest perhaps clothing is a good way for the older sons and daughters to begin as well. Which is why I love the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church. He once exhorted this, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved in the family, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bear with one another. If any one of you has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Wear the exquisite essential kingdom of God clothing. Pray it on. Live from its truth. Will not a life filled with God's compassion and kindness and forgiveness unto others be one situated right in the center of God's joy? Stuck in the mud with with pigs or stuck in the field meeting expectations and doing right, start with clothing. Beloved, clothe yourselves. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love. I was visiting with a longtime member, Phil Coltrane, yesterday, and he said I could, I could share this with you all. He had a fall about a day or so ago, and so he was in the hospital. He had a successful hip surgery this morning. Lots happened uh, just in the last 36 hours for him, but he's, he's doing well. Um, and we're sitting there talking, and, he, and he's talking, he's smiling about how when he comes to Wednesday night supper, he'll be bringing his walker these days, and the walker rumbles really loudly along the, the back parking lot there. A little uneven. You can kind of hear when Phil's coming. So that leads me into talking about some of the different things coming up in the life of the church. And I say, well, and of course the annual Palm Sunday is coming up where different congregations of the Stewart Circle Parish, we, we process around Monument Avenue with the, with the donkey and the palms. I always love that, Phil says. Now, that Monument Avenue cobblestone, that would make the rock a really rumble, wouldn't it? He says, yeah, maybe not a good idea. But then with a glint in his eye, he goes, I can ride the donkey. Somebody's got to be Jesus. And here we are in the stale hospital room with pills and tubes and surgery 14 hours away, and he's just laughing. We are, Hannah's daughter's there. We are just laughing. And Phil's full, beautiful laughter, it reminded me that one of the chief signs that a person or a people is starting to wear God's clothing well, regardless, quite frankly, of the circumstances, is laughter. That audible, 
inexplicable expression of joy that cannot be manufactured, that comes simply by grace from being at the heart of the party. Karl Barth famously declared, laughter is the closest thing to the grace of God. And boy, is that party about grace unto every right and wrong brother and sister. Holy and beloved, younger and older siblings, clothe yourselves. And you will know that the party is becoming more and more central to your life and the life of the church. The more often, regardless of circumstances, there are audible, inexplicable expressions of joy. Amen.